I've used this opening illustration before, so forgive me. Uh, sometimes after preaching in the same place for 16 years, you've got to repeat something every once in a while. So thank you so much for bearing with me. I was 12 years old, had the opportunity to go to the Dominican Republic on a mission trip when I was just 12 years old. And uh, the only challenge was it would cost $2,000 for me to go that I had to raise. And uh, $2,000 is a lot of money for me even today, but it seemed like all the money in the world when I was just 12. And, uh, and I didn't know whether I could raise it all. And so I went to my dad and said, Dad, what do you think? And he said, Son, here's what I want you to do. Plan on going. And he goes, and just work hard, keep your head down, do everything you can uh, to be able to raise that money. And so I did. I began to go to work and did everything that a 12-year-old would do, from washing cars to, to uh, cutting grass to, I think we even had a yard sale or two in the midst of that. But as time went on, it seemed like the weeks were going by really fast, but the money was coming very slowly. And I began to really doubt, really almost every day and every night, I began to get worried that I wasn't going to be able to raise the money in time. Finally, the next thing I knew, the whole summer was gone, and it was a week before uh, we were supposed to, I was supposed to leave and the money was due. And, uh, and I, I had only raised half the money. I only raised $1,000 out of the $2,000. And at that point, I just realized there was probably no chance of this happening. Well, my dad encouraged me to keep working, and so I did. And so we decided to have one more uh, car wash. Now, let me tell you this. If your salvation is based on a good car wash, then you know you're in trouble. And so we had planned this car wash with me and my friends. And, and we went and we had the car wash. Again, $1,000 short. We ended up at the end of the day, worked all day long. And at the end of the day, we had raised a mighty $100 at the end of the day. Still $900 short. So at that particular point, we decided, well, you know what? It's just not going to happen. I remember my friends were there. So I kind of tried to hold back the tears. I was so disappointed uh, from not being able to take that trip. And, uh, and I remember at the very end, a lady pulling up and basically saying, is it too late for me to get a, uh, my car washed? Now, this is after we had already cleaned everything up. And in the flesh, I wanted to say, yeah, you're too late and uh, move on. But I thought better because my dad was standing right next to me. And so I said, the restraining power of my dad told me to say, no, ma'am, please come in. We would love to wash your car. And we washed the car and we got done and she ended up giving me a check rather than cash. I found that odd. Uh, but at the same time, uh, when, I, when we got done cleaning up, I looked at the check and it was written for $1,000, $1,000. And so I was immediately excited. I ended up running to my dad and I said, dad, you're not gonna believe this. I've got the money. I'm going to the Dominican Republic. I'm going to on this mission trip at this point, so excited. And he just smiled and just kind of nodded his head. And he just looked at me and he said, I told you, didn't I son? I told you everything was going to work out just fine. And my dad turned to me at that point, or I turned to him, and I said, well, Dad, but how did you know? How did you know that this was going to happen? How in the world did you know at the end of this car wash that this woman was going to pull up and give me $1,000 to wash her car? He goes, I didn't know that. And he goes, all I knew was this, is my plan for you and for your life was for you this summer is for you to go on that mission trip. And if I had to write the entire check, $2,000, I was gonna do it. That was what I wanted you to do. That's my plan for you. You know, God has a plan for you. And the Bible is very clear about that. It's not to harm you. It is for your good and it is for your, it is for God's ultimate glory. The problem is this life can be so difficult at times, so hard at times, so many weird and strange things can happen around us that you and I can begin to doubt that plan. And if we don't doubt that plan, we sometimes begin to doubt whether that plan for us, that good plan for us is really ever going to come about. But let me assure you, beloved, that one day 
that God can sit us down when all this is said and done and we are with him for all eternity. He could very well look at you and I and say the same words, I told you, I told you that everything was going to work out just fine. And I wonder at that particular moment, if we don't look back, even for a moment, for some level of regret, that we look back in our life and we know on this side of heaven, we know that God has already assured us that everything was going to end well, did he not? He said, for all things work together for good, for, for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. He's told us that from the beginning. He will assure us of that end. But sometimes I think that if we were to go back at that moment when all is said and done, I wonder if you and I wouldn't look back and just wish that we had rested in his assurance instead of freaking out, worrying, being anxious about just about everything. And the truth is, is if you and I would just learn to rest in his assurance, beloved, you and I would probably live in a complete, our lives in a completely different way. We've been talking about what it means to be all in for Christ. That means to be fully and completely submitted to Jesus Christ. And, and we've seen so far that to be all in, we said that we must submit to the wisdom of God. Do you remember that? Great. Um, and then number two, that we must, why do I ask questions I don't want the answers for? The second was we must pursue the glory of God. The third was, was that we must trust in the provision of God. And this morning, the final message of what it means to be all in is this, is we must rest in the assurance of God. Now, if we're going to rest, find real rest, how many need some rest right now, right? I mean, just believers need to be at rest in Christ, in his insurance right now more than ever. And if we're going to do that, there's one thing that you have to remember. So there's just one point. It's a long one, but there's just one point today. And that is this. If we're going to rest in his assurance, we must understand that God's work is often out of sight, but it should not be out of mind. It is often out of sight. Often we do not see it, but it must not be out of our minds that God is at work assuring that his plan for us will be done. Now, a lot of explanation. Let me try to give it to you real quick. The last time that we were in 2 Samuel chapter, or 1 Samuel chapter 24, David was actually, uh, he was actually trusting in God's provision. God had told him that he would be king, but instead he had an opportunity to grasp at it in sin, but he didn't. He ended up waiting in faith on the Lord. And to nobody's surprise, God did exactly what he had promised. He gave him the throne and he became Israel's greatest king. But even though he was Israel's greatest king, he was also a sinner who was in need of being saved by the grace of God. He sinned some really egregious sins. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he tried to cover up that sin by murdering her husband Uriah. These were horrendous, terrible sins that he had ultimately committed before God. Well, what we find is he does confess his sin. God forgives him. He restores him. But we know that he has to play. He ends up living out some really severe consequences through the rest of his life and through the, the rest of 2 Samuel. Well, that's what we begin to see. One of the consequences of his sin was the rebellion of his son Absalom. Absalom wanted his dad's throne. 
and he didn't want to have to wait for natural causes for him to do the job. So he wanted to do the job. He wanted to kill his own father. So through a, peer, a, a number of different backhanded and underhanded and backstabbing events, he ended up getting all of, of the army of Israel to be able to back him and to be able to reject David as king. So he marched. We see this in chapter 16. He ended up marching on Jerusalem to be able to take David's life, but David was able to escape in time. David seemed to have a knack of that. And so at this point, while Absalom is in the kingdom, he decides, how am I going to kill him? I need to come up with a plan. So he calls his greatest, his greatest wise men in all of the kingdom, a man by the name of Ahithophel. Now Ahithophel had previously been David's counselor, but he ended up leaving. Good reason for that. The reason for that is because his granddaughter was Bathsheba. So you can understand why he probably doesn't like David after that particular incident. And so now he's following after Absalom and giving him wisdom. And so what he does is he comes to him and he asks Ahithophel, what shall we do? Well, Ahithophel gives him a plan, and it is an excellent two-part plan. The per first part has to do with an act of immorality. He tells him, he says, listen, the people of Israel need to know that you mean business, that you're serious about overthrowing your father in, so you've got to show them that you're fully committed. When David left, he left some of his wives here in the palace. You need to go and take them as your own wives. And when you take another man's wife, guess what? That means you're at the point of no return at that point. And so that's what he did. And this just wasn't part of his plan. This was actually fulfillment of prophecy. God had said that David would suffer because of the sin that he had ultimately committed. And earlier in Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 11, God had said this to David. He said, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and I will give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So again, he said, you sinned, you've been forgiven, you've been restored, but here are some of the consequences. And part of that is that his own son would take of his wives. And so that was the first part of his plan. The first part dealt with this act of immorality. The second part dealt militarily. So what, in chapter 17, what Ahithophel begins to do is lay out what he needs to do to actually get his hands on David. And there's three parts to this, just very quickly. The first had to do with overwhelming force. He said, David has 2,000 men. You need to send 12,000 men. And when you send 12,000 men, he is going to lose heart. His men are going to lose heart, and they're going to want to just give up. It will take the fight right out of them. The second thing he decided to do was not only use overwhelming force, but also to use the element of surprise, the element of surprise. Now, normally during that day, people knew that the regular time of killing each other was right at daybreak. You didn't want to kill each other late in the day. It got too hot for that. And so you wanted to kill people when you were fresh and cool in the morning. And it would also give you all day of light in order to be able to defeat and kill your enemy. It only made sense. So because everybody was used to that, a Ithophel told Absalom, we need to do it when he's not expecting it. We need to come in the middle of the night. He'll never see it coming. 
Now, there's a third part of this, and that was to remain narrowly focused in their objective. What you need to do is we're not trying to wipe out all 2,000 men. All we really want to do at this point is we want to kill David. So go after David and kill him. And once you do, it will take the fight right out of his men. Now, if you know anything about military strategy, which I do not, but for those who do know about it, say that this is really a perfect plan. If you're going to fight after an enemy, you want the same exact elements here. You want overwhelming force. You want the element of surprise. You want a very narrow, focused objective of what you're ultimately trying to accomplish. That means that you are going to be ultimately successful. And so this is the plan they have. And of course, Absalom is not an idiot. He recognizes that this is a great plan. Verse four, and the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And so he knows that this is a great plan, but he wants to get some more counsel. So he turns to another counselor, a man by the name of Hushai, and he wants to know his opinion. In verse six, it says, thus says Ahithophel, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says, if not you speak? Then Hushai said to Absalom, by the way, these are great boys' names if you're looking for them. Ahithophel and Hushai, they will love you forever. Just name them that. And so Hushai said to Absalom, the counsel this time, the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. He said, it is not good. And then he goes and explains why it's bad. He says, Ahithophel says you should send 12,000 men. That ain't nearly enough. You know what a great warrior David is. Are you crazy? It's like, a, it's like a mama bear and her cubs have been taken away out in the field. He is mad. And you're going to need more than 12,000 men. He goes, second idea, this whole trying to get him at night is not going to work. Everybody knows that he hides at night in, in cliffs and in caves. Nobody's going to be able to find him. This is a stupid, absurd plan. And then he turns around and he gives him what his plan is, verse 11. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for fortitude and that you go to battle in person. So there's two parts to his plan. He says, listen, we don't have enough. 12,000 ain't enough. You need to gather all the men of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Now what that would do is this is actually bad military advice. Because what that would do is that would take a long time to have this happen and David would be able to escape. You want to be able to move quickly. He's telling them to move slowly. Not a good battle strategy. The second thing that he does is he ends up propping up Ahithophel, or excuse me, uh, uh, of Absalom. He tells him, Absalom, you're the only one that could lead the battle. You're the only one that could lead the people of God. Really playing on his arrogance and his pride so that he actually sees this to be a better plan than Ahithophel's so that he'll take it. Now, the question for us immediately is why in the world would one of Ahithophel or, or, or Absalom's counselors, why in the world would he be giving bad advice to the king? The reason is, is because that's not his king. If you would know earlier in the book, what you would find out is he's actually a spy. He's actually a spy for David. And when David fled, he left him behind and he told him to disrupt the plans of Absalom. And it's exactly what he is attempting to do. And he ends up succeeding. Absalom actually sees Ahushai's advice and he takes his advice and not Ahithophel's. And it's, the Bible says in verse 14, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Ahushai the archai is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. So here's the question. You say, well, that's a lot. It is a lot, but there's a point. And here's the idea. Why in the world would Absalom, a man who knows something about battle, take this clearly 
clearly inferior advice on how to fight this battle. And why would he give up the better advice, the superior advice? Well, the first initial answer is because it was an answer of prayer. David had actually prayed back in chapter 15 and verse 31 when he found out that Ahithophel was now conspiring with Absalom. He prayed, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now, God answered that prayer, not by making Ahithophel dumb and giving stupid advice, but what he did was he brought another counselor, and by the other counselor coming and giving that advice, it confused the mind of Absalom, and that's what's happening. So it was kind of that, but it's even more than that. This was a divine, sovereign act of God. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, for the Lord had what? ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. David's life, the life of his family, and his throne were preserved from harm just as God had promised according to his sovereign plan because through his line would come Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. God was securing his plan in the midst of this, but up until verse 14, we never saw it. There was never any kind of allusions to God. There was never conversation about God. God wasn't even mentioned in the last part of chapter 16, the first uh, 13 verses in chapter 17. We didn't know God was at work at all until the author told us afterwards that this was all an act of God. This didn't happen because Absalom was an idiot. This didn't happen because, because uh, one of the counselors were, was more persuasive than the other. God had ordained this to happen in order to be able to preserve his work. And the key is we would have never known that God was at work. We would just look at this as a normal story, just a normal day event. You know, son trying to kill his father, just an old story. There they are just trying to kill and it's just trying to get advice, which way is the best way to be able to do it. And these two guys, he gave advice and he gave advice and it didn't work out. Lucky thing is, it just so happens to be a coincidence, just by chance, it just so happens that he ended up choosing the wrong advice. Praise God, isn't that a great thing that that just all worked out? But it was not by accident. It was ordained as a divine act of God to secure his plan for his people. When we talk about God determining things or ordaining things, we're talking about the sovereign rule of God. People have problem with this idea of God being sovereign. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he is fully and completely in control that he is boss, that he is God, that he could do what he wants, where he wants, and when he has to do it. And he doesn't have to explain himself to you or me. Amen? Uh, we got two people that believe in the sovereignty of God. I'm so encouraged as a pastor right now. And the whole idea is that this is what we believe about God. It's what the God ultimately teaches. And he has a sovereign plan for each of us. Do you believe that? And we, and we know a part of that sovereign plan, don't we? Here's part of the plan. He's going to come again. Second time. I need, to, I need some Pentecostals in here somewhere. I need something. He's going to come again. Amen? He's going to come again, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And what he's ultimately going to do is he is going to, there's going to be a judgment, white throne judgment, a judgment seat of Christ. And then and, and those who have placed their faith in him are going to be with him forever. That's a part of his sovereign plan. We get it. We look forward to it. Here's the problem. We don't know his sovereign plan between now and then. Would you agree? We don't know what he's doing. It's secret. 
It's exactly what was happening here. We look back. The only way that we can ever see God's sovereign plan is by looking back. We can almost never see it looking forward. Just like here, nobody in this story would have known that God was doing anything unless author had told us in verse 14, hey, God had been moving in the midst of this. If he didn't tell us and remind us that God was at work, he was out, it was out of sight, but it should not be out of mind, we would have missed it altogether. And that's exactly how it works in our lives almost every day. I had uh, shared this before with um, some of you, and, and, and again, I'll do it again this last, uh, this last week, Wednesday. We actually got to go up to the park, and it didn't rain. It was wonderful, and up at the aquatic center, and it was really a great, great time. And uh, if, you, if you didn't get a chance to go, please go next time, if you will, because it's rare that it doesn't rain, and so you missed a great opportunity. And so uh, one decade ago, um, we had actually planned, my wife usually plans that uh, get-together, and so we were going up to the aquatic center, and uh, after service, I knew this was not going to happen. It was going to get washed out. I mean, all the news said it was like 90 to 100% chance of rain, and, and that it was just going to get washed out. We weren't going to be able to go to it. So almost right after the service, I said, Larissa, you might want to go ahead and call it. Let everybody else not to waste their time to go up there. And she said, as a loving, caring wife, no, I'm not going to do that. And I was like, okay, all right, touche. And so didn't say anything, and then I thought that was winter, you know, pouted for a little while and wondering why she would not take that. And then a couple hours later, I go, you know, it really looks bad outside. Now is probably a good time to cancel that. It says right here on the map that there's a 100% chance of rain with thunderstorms, severe thunderstorms. Now, he just very eloquently, lovingly, and firmly said, no, I'm not going to. And so I was at a point that, man, you know where you get, where you cannot push this any further. You do know that, right? And so I knew I couldn't push this any further. I knew I couldn't go. I couldn't talk to her about it anymore. And so we finally all got into the car. And so I did what all good husbands do. I didn't say another word. I just became passive aggressive, right? That's, that's much better at that point. And as you're driving in the car and as you're making your way up to the water park, you just look to your wife and you just go, oh, isn't it wonderful out? Look, it, it looks a little like the apocalypse, doesn't it? Just happening before. In fact, if I were to picture and to paint the book of Revelation, this is what it would look like uh, right here. And, and so as you're, in, you're just still trying to figure out your, 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 your crazy, right before we pull into the road that you go into the aquatic center, I then turned to my wife and I said, I just got to let you know, because I couldn't hold it in anymore. Men, you know what I'm talking about? Couldn't hold it in anymore. And I knew in a moment we we're it, it was, it, I was going to be right anyway. And so at that point, I, I just, ever love in mine is going to come out here. And so we pulled up to a little pavilion that was right outside and there was about a hundred of our people stand, sitting underneath that pavilion. And I got out and this was very curious to me. And so I got out and I, and I walked up and I go, are you a bunch of crazy people doing? And they all went, surprise! It was mine and Pastor Dan's 40th birthday and it was a surprise party for all of us. And I felt like a hero at that moment. I felt so good and so godly and just felt like this was one of my finer moments. And, and I just did not see this thing coming at all. Now, when I stop and begin to think about it and I look backwards, I begin to start looking at some things that started to be able to make sense. Like for instance, for instance my wife is not a whisperer, but she at all. And, but she started whispering a lot. Like every time I turned around, it was, excuse me, I got to go out of the room. Why are you going out of the room? Why I got to say, I got to talk to somebody about something. Oh, okay. 
Why is she doing so much of that? It, it, was, it was kind of strange. I began to notice that in our pantry, we had a huge number of plates and cups, and they just kept coming, and they just kept coming, and I'm thinking she must have found a deal somewhere. If you know her, that's probably what it is. And, and, then, and then on top of that, you look at the credit card, and every once in a while, you look at the debit card number, you look at account number, and you're like, what are all of these things to party land? I don't understand. And you would look inside of there and you'd find out. And then I begin to look at, and it began to dawn on me. She had been at work planning this the whole time. Her work was out of sight, but it probably ought not have to been out of mind. Beloved, please understand that this is almost always how God works in our life. You are not privy to his sovereign plan for your life. And the reason is because it requires you to have faith without faith him. And we would do not have the faith we need if we see and we know exactly how everything is going to happen. He keeps us relying on him and trusting in him because we don't know. It keeps us completely and fully reliant on him. Our problem is, is in the midst of difficult times, you and I begin to buy the lie that God's not at work that he's not working on our behalf, that he's not helping us in some way, that he's not loving on us in some way. And we begin to become frustrated with God in the midst of it. And the biblical truth you must, um, you must hold on to and cling to is, yes, it is true. Seeing what he is doing in this particular moment, you may not see, but you must be assured he has worked securing the plan for your life, a perfect for you. He never stops. That is what you must hold on to. It's, must, it's what we must believe. When we struggle sometimes with this idea of sovereignty, don't we? And yes, you, you do. You, you do because I've sat in theology classes with some of you where you almost killed one another. You Arminians and you Calvinists, right? And so you sit there and you begin to talk sovereignty of God. And then all, all of a sudden somebody goes, well, I believe in the sovereignty of God. And he's like, I do too, but I believe in, in the free moral choice of man. I believe in, in free will. And the other person, then you have a whole class divided between free willers and the sovereignty of God. And they go back and forth. Oh, well, who's really controlling your salvation? Oh yeah, but you just think that God's a puppet. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Not at all. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. And they begin to just fight back and forth. And then you wonder, well, and it is a little confusing, isn't it? How in the world can God be completely in control and his plan never be deterred when it's full of a group of people who are doing exactly what their sinful hearts want them to do, and yet he still be able to turn it and to make it for his glory so that his glory upheld and his plan for you is upheld and protected. We see it here. We also see it. One of the best well-known passages is really with, with one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, who ends up betraying Jesus, which ultimately leads to his death. You sit there, Judas, Judas the, the plan in the Old Testament says that he would be betrayed by one who was close to him, and he was betrayed in the exact way, but yet Judas was not coerced to sin by God in any way, by his own free moral choice, by his own sinful will. He did what he wanted to do, but God ended up being, using this as a plan, as his redemptive plan to bring salvation to you and to me. If you stop and think about it long enough, if you think about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and you think on it long enough, your head will literally explode off your shoulders. You're just, you're just fighting it all the time. It's so hard to be able to understand and get around. 
But as one author writes, God doesn't remind us here of God's sovereign work to cause us theological sufferings, but rather to encourage us by reminding us that he is always working even when it goes largely unnoticed. God's sovereign plan cannot be thwarted. It cannot be changed, either by your enemy or the sin in which we ultimately commit. God's plan will always come true for his people's good and for his glory. And do you know what happens when we believe that? When we truly rest in that assurance of his sovereignty, what happens is we are freed from worry, fear, and anxiety. We are truly free. Now, let me give you three ways that we become free. In closing, it frees us from frustration with God. Now, we would never openly admit that we're frustrated with God. I mean, that's, we're, we're much too, too refined as Christians. We've been around this too long to be able to go, yes, I'm frustrated with God right now. We would never say it, but we certainly think it and we certainly feel it. Times in our life when things are going so wrong and it's like that, we go out and we try to get it ourselves. If you're not going to love me enough to give me what I need, then I'm going to go ahead and lay hands of it myself, and I'm going to go ahead and make sure that it happens by myself. And how many of you know that rarely ever ends well? Rarely ever ends well. And so we find this in the in, in, in example of my dad. So my dad, I was like any other 16-year-old. I wanted a car, and I wanted my car. And so my dad had this really sweet 1970, 1978 Toyota Corolla SR5 hatchback that was brown. It's a very classic car. Look it up. It's the ugliest car ever invented. It's terrible. It's worse than a Pinto. And uh, it's just really, really ugly. But I needed this car. I wanted my own car. Anybody feel me out there? Just wanted my own car. Now, this was my dad's car. It was his third car. He allowed me to be able to drive it around, use it whenever I wanted to be able to use it. And every time I said, Dad, I want to buy this car from you, he'd go, no. You're not going to buy the car from me. He goes, you just sit back, and he goes, just, just use the car whenever you need it. No, I, but I want the car, Dad. So I begin to work with my stepmom on it, right? If it doesn't work with Dad, you go to the stepmom. So I went with her, and I began to try to convince her, hey, listen, I really want my own car. Why don't you just sell it to me? And I worked and worked and worked, tried to hush around my dad. My dad, every time I brought it up, would be like, would you just be quiet? Would you just stop? And I was just like, no, 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 you just need to be able to, get, you know, Dad, this is what I want to be able to do. Finally, I convinced my stepmom, and she goes, well, just sell it to him. Just ask him for 500 bucks. So I took 500 bucks again, all the money that I had in the world. And the lady in the car never showed up again. So I had to actually work for that money. And so I took the $500 and I, and I gave it to her. And then I got done and I was all excited. I was out vacuuming, cleaning the car. And my dad came out and he goes, are you an idiot? <laughs> and there's a part of you that asks, is this a trick question? I'm not really sure. Is, is you're an idiot. And I go, I go, no. And he goes, you had everything laid out for you perfectly and you just messed it up. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, as long as it was my car, you could keep your $500. You can lose it as your own. He goes, we would pay your gas. We would pay your insurance and we would pay the repairs. Well, good luck, buddy. It's all yours now. <laughs> and then when I sat back, as I began to realize that, guess what? I wanted God's provision for me. I doubted my dad's plan for me. I doubted my dad's care for me. And I began to strive and to get something apart from what my dad had for me. And I was worse off for it than had I been just to be able to rest in his assurance. And it's the same thing with us, folks. Same thing with us. 
If we find ourselves in a place where we think that our God is not giving us all that we need, even when we think we need more, we need to think, uh, we need to think differently. It's wrong thinking. Second thing that we're freed from is this. It frees us from selfishness towards others. One of the reasons we have such a hard time serving one another, serving our spouse, or serving our uh, people in our church or in our community is because, to be honest with you, we feel like we have to fight for our own rights. We feel like we have to fight for our own well-being. We have to fight for what we feel like what we need. As a believer, you don't need to fight for all that. You know, I have six kids, and, and all the six kids, when they were three or four years old, they were identical. They were almost exactly alike in the fact that they were all very selfish. Now, you may not have had three or four-year-olds like that, but my kids were a little bit selfish, and I think they would admit it since they were three or four. But one of the things they were selfish in is their toys, right? We didn't have a whole lot of toys, but, but whatever toy was out there, you know, we usually bought them for one or for the other, whatever it was. And, 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 and they would, somebody would have it. And, and as soon as somebody would have it, somebody else would want it. And this is like toys that nobody even wanted. You, you get it. Like nobody ever wanted to play for. It, it would be like the, the three-legged one-eyed pony that nobody wanted. It looks like some kind of crazy mutant. And what would people do is one kid would pick it up and go, oh, this is kind of fun. The next kid would go, he's got my mutated pony, you know, and then they would want to fight over it and it'd become a two-legged pony. And so you, you it, all this would happen. Well, what I would often do for my kids is I would go to one of them, usually the older one, and I would say, just, just let your sister have the, the two-legged one-eyed pony. Just, just let them have it. It, it. It's okay. If you do, I've got some popcorn for you. Well, immediately when I give the popcorn, they would all of a sudden become generous. They would sit there and go, here, you take the mutated pony, sissy. Here, you, you take it. You go, ahead, you go ahead and grab it. You go ahead and have it now. now. Now, then I'd go and give them popcorn. The question really at that particular point is, why would they be willing to give it up? Well, the logical answer is popcorn is better than the mutated pony. I get it. There's a breakdown in the illustration. But I think it's even more. I think once they were secure that their dad was looking after their best interests, it freed them up to look after the best interest of other people. Beloved, you can serve others and not fight for your way and your satisfaction and your needs because you have a heavenly father who has taken upon himself to look after your needs for you. And when you do, you are free. There's another way that we are free and we'll finish this up. That is, we are finally free. And I think this is fitting for the closure of our uh, sermon series. It frees us up to live this one life all in. It frees us to live this one life all in. When we rest in the assurance of God and we are free in that, we begin to begin to live and to do stuff in the areas of ministry that we normally wouldn't do before. You know, this last week, we were, I was talking to Jared and Whitney, and they've been they've very frustrated, as you can imagine, um, for not being able to get back on the field. That's the call of God for them right now is to be on the field, to be and to take the gospel where it is not. And they so desperately want to be uh, there uh, overseas. And it just hasn't been working. And, and a big thing is they've just recently, uh, they had actually been called out. They had actually been given uh, permission to go ahead and go. And uh, by, I mean, excuse me, their, their visas were accepted, but immediately as it was accepted, they got turned down again because now COVID is going crazy in that part of the world. And as it was going in that particular part of the when you can go. 
and they begin to really struggle. Then I found out that with the IMB in, 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 the, in, in, excuse me, in the company, what we began to find is that some were going and some were not going. Some decided that they didn't want to go now that they had permission because they were afraid of COVID. And, and let me just say this real quick. This is not a political statement. Okay, I got to make sure that I say that. Y'all started laughing because you're like, oh boy, here we go. This is not a political statement. This is not Democrat, Republican. The truth is here at Mercy Hill, we believe that you need to do what you think is best for you and your family. If that is to take a COVID vaccination, you take it. You be serious about your health. If you feel like the best thing for you is not to take it, then you don't, then you don't take it. I just want to make that statement very quickly, all right? We're on the record, but here's the idea. With them, some of the M's did not want to go to the field because of COVID. So they were pulling back and they said, we don't want to ultimately go. This is too dangerous for us to go. Well, I asked, uh, I asked our, our M's here, I asked them, uh, how do you feel about that? And they go, we want to go. Just give us an opportunity to be able to go. And I go, why? They go, we're not worried about that. He goes, what I'm, what I'm worried about is that there are people who are in the midst of dying that don't have access to the gospel. And if they die, they'll be in hell for all eternity. That's what keeps driving me. And I sat there and I began to think, and immediately my thoughts begin to go to another missionary named Lottie Moon, who served years and years ago in China. And she said this, she understood this idea of the sovereignty of God and what it means to rest in that assurance. She once said, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal until my work is done. It doesn't mean that we're dumb or stupid or we take unnecessary risks or we don't think and pray through things and we don't use wisdom in the decisions that we make. But the bottom line is you and I are immortal until the sovereign plan of God says so. Boy, I'll tell you what, you get a hold of that and you and I will not live our lives in constant fear and struggle and worry and anxiety. You and I will be freed up to love God, love others, and even love our enemies. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for today, and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this series, and we thank you for the truth that you've poured in us and taught us. God, as we leave, Lord, I know that these are not elementary kind of text. I know that you have to listen and engage and, and work, but God, these are jewels and diamonds of your word, truths that you want us to embrace. God, I pray right now in our response to you, God, I, I pray that we would be just overwhelmed to the core of our soul, that God, you are in control of all things. Nothing can thwart your plan for us. We are immortal until that day and that we will trust you. And that God, that we will live our life with assurance that nothing can change your, your plan. We love you in your precious name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. Let's respond to what we've heard. I'll be down here if you wanna pray. If you wanna join the church at this point, I know some of you have stated that you do. Now's the time to do that, all right?
Yeah, maybe 